Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from BearMarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your marriage and your sex life. And I am so pleased to have a special guest, Todd Corpy, on today to talk about um, his book, Your Daughter Shall Prophesy, about how we can support women, how men can support women when you do believe in equality. So this is a great interview. I'm so excited to bring it to you in a few minutes. Before we do, I want to do a special shout out. We have some new merch in the store that I am so excited about. Um, In our new book, She Deserves Better, we have 32 little sayings that start with the phrase, she should know. So things like, she should know that Jesus is not a jealous boyfriend. She should know that she's allowed to exist in a female body. Um, She should know that if you're struggling with mental health, it doesn't mean you did something wrong. Um, And they're great little phrases. They're great little nuggets. And we we hired someone to create us an amazing design and we put it on pillows, on mugs, on t- you can buy all kinds of stuff with it. And it's just so empowering either for yourself or even to buy for your daughters. So um, I'm going to put a link to the store where you can see that. We also have a lot of other merch in our store that, again, is really empowering for people. And when you buy that merch, it helps support this podcast and this blog and everything that we do. So go check that out. Um, the link is in the podcast notes It's uh, or just go to Bear marriage.com and click on store. Um, Also a big shout out to our patrons who help fund a lot of our research and you can join that as well for as little as $5 a month and get some exclusive behind the scenes content. So that's at patreon.com slash bear marriage and the link is below. And now without further ado, let's get to our interview. Well, I am so pleased to bring onto the podcast Todd Corpy, who is a Pentecostal missiologist and a uh, professor at Fuller Seminary. Hello, Todd. Hi, how are you? Good. And I am so excited for your new book, um, Your Daughter Shall Prophesy. It's just out now. And this is a different book. We, we've had a lot of people on the podcast to talk about, um, you know, women in ministry and women's roles. And that's not exactly what this book does. You take it one step further, which I think is so cool. And I'm going to read what you said. You said, this book is not as much an apologetic for women in ministry as it is a guide for how to support women in ministry. Yeah. So I found, you know, I grew up in uh, the Pentecostal tradition, which has been ordaining women for well over a century. Mm -hmm. And and so what I found was there's a lot of resources out there now that are aimed at convincing people that women can and should be pastors, which are all great. Mm -hmm. But having led alongside my wife, uh, having been around uh, female pastors for years, I realized there's not a lot of resources out there to help people like me who are, in addition to being a pastor, is also a pastor's husband. And uh, for people who uh, are uh, in the orbit of women in ministry to know practically how how do I support them? In what ways do does my helping actually hurt? And and, and things of that sort. So that was kind of the aim in writing this book is uh, part of it is, is kind of sharing a lot of my uh, missteps along the mm-hmm. way in the last 15 years of ministry, but hopefully in, in, in uh, toward the aim that others can, can benefit from some of those mistakes and some perspectives, as well as actually hearing from uh, women and their real life examples as well. Yeah, I love that because the point that you're making a lot in your book is just because we believe in equality doesn't mean we practice it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that there's a difference between theology and practice. And Mm -hmm. sometimes in egalitarian spaces, I found we almost use 
the the theology as a cover or as kind of well i've i've checked off that box women can be mm-hmm. pastors that's great and we often ignore the ways in which we actually uh put barriers in place uh for women so my my goal in writing this book and as, as i say in the book is that we would move from being just passive supporters to passionate advocates that it takes mm-hmm. a forward momentum an actual demonstrated effort uh, to remove those barriers so that our theology and our lifestyle actually line up wow like so we're not hypocritical right yeah a little bit yeah wow <laughs> no, nothing worse than going to mcdonald's and asking for a shake and finding out the shake mas- machine or the ice cream machine's broken and mm-hmm. the same is true there's nothing worse than showing up at an egalitarian church only to realize it's, hey, we're egalitarian, wink, wink. And that's about the extent of it. So yeah. And I know in Canada, in my own um, country, we have a number of egalitarian denominations that don't have, or that hardly have any female senior pastors or, you know, just because, and I I don't think it's, it's necessarily all about the pastorate, but it's just how we do value women and and how do we actually treat women. So let's jump into your book. Um, You did say that a lot of the book is filled with your own missteps. And I really appreciated that you got really vulnerable and I'm going to talk about one of them right now. (laughs) So let's just jump into all the mistakes Todd made right at the beginning of the podcast. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Um, But you said when we were first married, I expected her to do my ironing, shoulder most of the housework and all of the cooking. I wanted her to be in ministry, but I also implicitly expected her to drop whatever she was doing at a moment's notice to help me in whatever I was doing. We were theologically equal, but functionally hierarchical. Yeah, so that... That one stings to have it read back to you a little bit. <laughs> like I, I have a, a friend from uh, who grew up in uh, Sweden who uh, reached out to me about that. It's like, if my husband would have done that, we would have never gotten married. It's like, that's yeah. fair. But mm-hmm. it, a lot of it stems from, and this was the, the, the underlying point was that two people, when they get married, bring in the assumptions that they view as normal into mm-hmm. their marriage. So it's not that, well, these are my explicit values. It's, well, this is my perception of normal as yeah. it pertains to how marriage is modeled. And I had a very uh, ministry-focused egalitarian uh, uh, set of parents modeled to me. So my dad supported my mom uh, when she would teach Sunday school, when she would preach. He was the, he, he liked being behind the scenes and he was very supportive of that role, not threatened by the fact that she was, you know, a teacher and a preacher. Um, my, but at home, it was, it was very much, we were kind of egalitarian at church and complementarian at home. They made decisions together, but very much kind of a traditional, what you would think of mid 20th century American family. My, my dad did all the outside stuff. My mom did all the inside stuff and so forth. And Terrace parents were very much the opposite, kind of kind of functionally complementarian at church, but they mm-hmm. kind of did things as a team at home. And so we went in to this egalitarian marriage with very different expectations, only to find that it created conflict, mm-hmm. <laughs> as it inevitably would. And I, I remember this, uh, vividly, uh, we were working at a church. She was the associate youth pastor, which is the, the uh, church that, that I talk about in the opening story of the book. Um, and I was the children's pastor and I was running this event at the same time she was running the event. And I remember, now mind you, we got married young. So give me a little yeah, bit of part of, yes, yes, I do. Okay, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but I remember getting upset with her because she wasn't there to support me because I was overwhelmed with this event that we were running, not taking into account she's also running an event and I'm not there to support her, you know, but early on there was kind of this default mechanism that I defaulted to of, well, we're equal except for when 
we can't be equal. And then we need to, do, then we need to go back to the, the, right. the normal way, you know? Okay. So how'd you get over that? Like when, when was the light bulb moment for you that, that I'm not being fair here? Yeah. It, it, I think it came in stages early on. Those, those kind of household codes work themselves out. I learned very uh, quickly if I wanted to, if I needed ironing done, I needed to iron my clothes, you know, and, and found and found that I actually enjoyed that. I found it therapeutic having, you know, just well starched clothes and all that kind of stuff. Um, so some of that stuff worked itself out early on. The big kind of seismic shift um, came when we were church planters in Flint, Michigan, and we were co-pastoring at the time this this uh, small church plant. And there was a professor uh, during my master's, he was uh, my program advisor, his name was Wilmer Viacorta at Fuller. And he he modeled this uh, kind of the, the ethos of what the book is intended to, to represent, this passionate advocacy that there's, it's not simply just a matter of being cool with women in ministry or even being passionate about women in ministry, but it's an advocacy that's I need to look for opportunities to leverage my place in in ministry and in the world to help come alongside women. And and so it I remember coming home from a, a, a particular visit uh, with my cohort uh, in Colorado and coming home and just repenting to Tara, my wife. Mm-hmm. and just i'm I realize now the barriers that kind of my thick headedness has put in place. and I, you know, we planted our church in my hometown. And so in my mind, consciously, we're going at this as equals, but there was a sense on, under the, uh, on an unconscious level that the church was really mine, you know, mm-hmm. if, if the city was mine, the vision of the church was to, and it capped her. And, and truthfully, if I'm being completely honest, between the two of us, she she's really the better pastor, and and there, it came it, it took a while for me to come to a place where I realized that, and for me to put barriers over her, actually not only it not only disadvantaged her, but it disadvantaged our church, and in turn disadvantaged the community that we were trying to reach. Wow, that's so interesting. You know, um, this whole thing about kind of expecting that she would be there to pick up the slack or that she would. I find that I, I just love this, this story that my uncle used to tell. So my uncle was on the elders board at a complementarian church. He and my aunt were both egalitarian, but they were going to a complementarian church. And my uncle and aunt were both physicians as well. And my aunt was more renowned and busier than my uncle was. And the elders board was uh, allocating all this work that all the elders had to do. And my uncle was like, how are we supposed to get this done? And everyone said, we'll just get your wife to do it. And my uncle said, but Allison doesn't have a wife, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, like, how does that work exactly? But yeah, this idea that she, she is there to support your vision is very much still in the church. And it, it, it is still in egalitarian spaces too. So I love the fact that you recognize that you touched on something um, that, that I want to bring up too, because you have a whole chapter on this idea of how we see power. Mm-hmm. Because we tend to see it as like this limited resource or something that we have to hoard. And and that's actually the opposite of power. Because you said like, you know, I want to leverage my power to help her. And so tell tell us how we see power wrong in the church often. Yeah, I think the, the title, it's uh, I think it's chapter four, is called Power is, Ain't Pie. 
And mm-hmm. it's this idea that we tend to treat, we treat power unconsciously like a scarce resource. Mm-hmm. And, and some of that really goes back to uh, how we view uh, creation, how we view our, our place in this world as either detached from God, which is as a result of the rebellion of, of Genesis 3, or in communion with God as our source. If, if we approach things from a, a pers- from a perspective of the rebellion, uh, we view power as a limited resource. We mm-hmm. view it as something that if you have more, I have less, inevitably. Um, but we see modeled throughout the scriptures in, in probably no greater place than the, the uh, feeding of the 5,000, where it the the way of the kingdom is one of multiplication that when we give something away it's multiplied in our hands and so in in that chapter i use the example i call i call the 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 way of this world in, in power stewardship uh, babel power mm-hmm. because i i talk and i talk about that that narrative where you have this uh, establishing of this, w- w- what is actually a ziggurat, this kind of uh, ancient Near Eastern temple that's intended to reach to the heavens. And the idea is if I ascend, it's on your neck. You know, it's it's a with a boot on your neck, I get higher by put, by keeping you down so that I can commune with the divine so that everyone can look up and see me communicating with the divine and can you know laud praises and 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 all of that but we see with the pattern of Jesus this passover power that it is a matter not of ascending to be like god but of essentially stooping down of emptying ourselves as Jesus did as philippians 2 talks of of uh, and not trying to count ourselves in equality with God, but bending down and lifting uh, other people up of pouring ourselves out and the, the, the blessing in that. And I have found this both in, 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 on a theological level, but also in a practical ministry level that when I give power away, when I empower women in my life um, and not just my wife, but the, the women pastors that I have worked with, when I give away opportunity, when I give, it stings at first, it feels like I'm losing something, you know, but I have found it over and over and over again to come back as I'm Pentecostal. So I'll use the term double portion uh, (laughs) as, as a sort of kind of double portion that God multiplies it as I give it away because he recognizes that I can steward it faithfully. Yeah. I love that. I I think that's a beautiful um, uh, way to look at it. Okay. There, there's a lot of, uh, quite funny things in your book. Like you, you, you give a lot of, um, examples that are quite funny, a lot of stories that are quite funny. And I did laugh out loud at this particular line that I'm going to read, but this is coming in the middle of the chapter on the smoking hot wife and the problem with how pastors often sexualize their wives in, in yeah. front of others and how wrong that is. Yeah. And you say, um, fundamentally the reason is flawed because first, and I know this is difficult for many of us men to deal with. Most women aren't after you. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, because, because the reason that so many men say, you know, my smoking hot wife is to tell, Hey girls, I'm off limits. I'm and off it's the like, market. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, hon? She's not into you anyway. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so let's talk about the smoking hot wife. Why is this such a bad, bad idea when pastors well, do it? Yeah. I think explicitly that, that specific example is exactly that. I think it's, it's to communicate uh, two things. I think there is that dynamic of 
it, it, I mean, all men have, you know, a, a slightly overinflated ego uh, than, than what reality probably should, should call for. Um, so I think there is this, this implicit, like, I need to communicate that I'm off the market, which can be very egocentric. I honestly, I think it can also be very well-intentioned that like, I'm trying to model, you know, it, exclusive devotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but in actuality, it just comes across weird and people don't, people don't come to church for you to communicate that from the pulpit. That's not really, it's not proper stewardship of the pulpit. The second thing is that it also communicates this sort of objectification of my wife that in, in order to praise her, it has to be her looks and and it has to be not just her beauty, but like in a sexualized way. And I mean, I have heard from, many pastors in many spaces, some of the most ridiculous kind of shock jock value kind of stuff said in this effort to communicate kind of this lauded praise on on their uh, on their wives. And I think perhaps a better way of doing that is to communicate virtues that don't necessarily communicate that put other women down because mm-hmm. I, I don't have to tell you uh, this is this is your lane, but as you know, if I'm talking about all the ways in which my wife is smoking hot and, and all of this kind of stuff, women in, in the congregation are, are comparing themselves naturally to her of all the ways that she doesn't fit that bill or, you know, they're not, they're shaped differently or they look differently or whatever. Is that what I want as a pastor entrusted with the care of the women in my congregation? And personally, I would say no. And so what I what I recommend on that specific subject is choosing instead to praise her virtues, praise her intelligence, her strength, her her wit, her like, and and choose to praise things that aren't stereotypically feminine, you know, like, oh, she's a great cook. Well, that may be my wife's a great cook. But I don't talk about that from the pulpit because it forces her into a stereotype of that's, well, that's her place. So of course she should be a great cook. And instead I focus on values and virtues that are either neutral or more, or kind of break open that stereotype a little bit. Cause my heart is not only to build her up in a way that doesn't objectify her, but it's also to give permission to the women in my congregation that if even if you don't fit the mold of the you know stereotypical like wife or whatever that there's room for you in the family of god to be valued to be honored to be lifted up and i th- i think that's important and we need to break free of those molds but the kind of the underlying point in that of that chapter is that there's a lot of things that we do as men uh and and i and i would say to some extent women as well out of the desire to to want to empower women in ministry to want to empower the women in our lives and we actually hurt and it's kind of that classic adage uh, uh, by that uh, inspired by that book title of when helping hurts that like mm-hmm. we often intend to help but we actually end up hurting or establishing barriers in the place of women and so we need to talk more openly about that that like hey maybe talking about your you know your wife smoking bod isn't the most appropriate way to build her up as well as to kind of lift the feminine voice and and character of your church. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the men sitting in a congregation too listening to you praise Tara's yeah, intelligence or her an amazing program that she led or or whatever it might be. Like that's really modeling um what what men should be looking for in women too. Like I think I think that's just such a healthy 
a healthy thing to do. I love it. Um, in that chapter as well, let, let's just let's just tackle another huge subject that comes up all the time in Christian circles, which is the Billy Graham rule. <laughs> so, yeah. how tell, talk to me about the Billy Graham rule and what you think about that. Um, well, or this, the Mike Pence rule, whatever people, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I, I think fundamentally, you know, I, I think it's rooted in again the best of intentions, mm-hmm. but overlooking how it impacts women, um, and and truthfully how it how it impacts men as well. Yeah. Because- so let's just define it because people may not know. So the Billy yeah. Graham rule is the idea that uh, Billy Graham Billy Graham did this that he would never be alone in a car in a restaurant and hotel room with another woman. So. Um, there always had to be somebody else there. And Mike Pence did the same thing. Um, And let's talk about how that, how that actually does impact women. Yeah. So, I mean, think, think about it from this perspective, if I'm the pastor of a local church or Mm -hmm. I run, you know, a Christian organization, a nonprofit, and I am only, uh, my rule is I only meet one-on-one with other men, but there are women that are entrusted to me as, as their leader then I immediately put a cap on their developmental opportunities. I, I put a cap on the nature in which we can meet, the way in which the, I, can, I can help come alongside them and empower them um, <clears throat> to be able to even voice concerns or, uh, or problems. Um, not being able to meet one-on-one which again is rooted in this desire for accountability and all of that kind of stuff. But the unintended consequence of that is it, it limits the developmental potential of women. And in the pastorate where women are severely up, uh, underrepresented, even in egalitarian denominations, um, it, that's especially an issue because often there aren't women who are in positions to develop other women. And so you have men that won't develop those women one-on-one. And so it creates a host of issues. I think the underlying problem is that, again, it's rooted in this kind of assumption of the sexualization of mixed gender relationships that naturally, if, you know, two people of opposite gender are in a room long enough that sex will randomly combust. Like it's just an inevitable <laughs> law of the universe. Mm-hmm. And instead recognizing there, there are healthy boundaries, there are healthy accountability uh, factors that you can put into place. Like for example, instead of refusing to ride alone in a car with all women, recognizing there, there may be based on the nature of the relationship, some women in, in your life for whom that's appropriate and others that it may not be for. Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, my practice is, if I'm alone in a car uh, with a woman, I text my wife like, hey, you know, this is where we're going. This is, you know, I'll text you when we get there. And so it's just a casual, it's not like a weird thing, but it's just like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm keeping you in loop. And we talk about the conversations that we have and stuff like that. Again, not in like, a, you know, I have to file a report with her by the end of the day or vice versa. But it's just a part of the ongoing rhythm of our relationship. We talk about our day. And so we bring that stuff in, into, into account. But I think that, again, it's, it's this idea that's well-intended, but we ignore the consequences. And I think as the consequences, the unintended ramifications of that have been brought up, 
I don't know if we've done a great job of taking those seriously. It's kind of like, well, yeah, well, what do you do? Well, we, yeah. we reform it. We change it. <laughs> we do something. I think, I think the underlying um, assumptions are kind of funny too. Cause like you said, like the concern is that sex will spontaneously happen. Well, I mean, I'm sorry guys, but most women don't want to sleep with you. I think that's something that, that men need to understand is most women don't want to sleep because that, that's the, that's the concern. Either I'm going to suddenly have sex that I didn't intend to have, which is not going to happen. Like unless you want it to happen, that's not going to happen. And if you're, if you're that close to having an affair, you have bigger problems. Um, or the second that's often brought up is, is this, the, um, the fear of a false allegation, but false allegations are really, really rare, (laughs) like really, really rare. And I think when, when we talk about the Billy Graham rule in, in terms of, we need to make sure there aren't any false allegations, that actually is making an institutional statement that you think women make false allegations all the time. Right. Yeah. The, the, the number of false allegations are, are dis, overwhelmingly disproportionately less mm-hmm. than the prevalence of this kind of rule. And, and you could make the case, well, the rule prevents that kind of stuff. Well, not, not, I, the thing is, is if someone wants to make a false allegation, they're going to find a way to do it, Billy Graham rule or not, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so I, I think, yeah, we need to kind of come to grips with the fact that we are not, you know, these just objects of sexual, se- sexual desire as men that just, it, it, and I, I think we need also need to recognize though, that um, I, I, on a pastoral level, we're entrusted with the, both the men and women in our care, whether they be staff, whether they be uh, uh, congregants, um, whether they pe- be people in our in our community, and that pastoral care has to come before the, this weird sort of gatekeeping. If the gatekeeping prevents mm-hmm. good pastoral care, then the gatekeeping needs to be reformed. Yeah, yeah, and especially yeah, especially because women do need mentors as well. And if you're in a situation where there aren't a lot of female leaders, the only mentorship can come from other men. Um, and so we have to ask, yeah, how is that, how is that getting done? Um, he made a point too, that the practices of some churches with issues like whether it's the Billy Graham rule or, uh, whatever it might be would never pass like equal opportunity stuff. Like this is, this would all be against human rights. If churches, if churches were actually, cause churches are exempt from a lot of these sorts of laws, but like if they weren't exempt, churches would be in so much trouble yeah. based on how they treat women. And I don't think that that. I, I don't think we understand how weird we are and how weird we look to the rest of the world. Yeah. I, I actually consulted a friend of mine who's an attorney and I was like, am I getting this, this right? Like why, why is this stuff able to happen so often? And she said, there are obviously some prohibitions that extend both to religious institutions and non-religious institutions across the board. But the issue isn't even so much the religious exemption, although that has that, that can play in in certain circumstances, but it's the employee threshold. That's mm-hmm. many churches don't meet the employee threshold to, to fall under or to qualify under those equal employment opportunity commission guidelines for discrimination. And, but we have to ask ourselves just because we don't meet that threshold does, should we just keep, let ourselves off the hook? Oh, I'm free to discriminate because we don't have enough employees to, <laughs> for the government to watch us. Or do we want to live in, in an exemplary fashion that is a witness to the community around us that even though we're not required to, we go above and beyond. We don't let the government regulate our 
our holiness. We don't let the government regulate our, our human flourishing within our communities and instead choose to model a more excellent way for the rest of the world um, as, as a witness to the community. And I think by not being required to do those things and rising above and doing them anyway, building new ways to empower women, I think the church should be a place where the rest of the world looks at us and is like, this is the way to do it. This is the way to empower women. This is the way to empower traditionally marginalized voices. This is the way to empower people of color. This is a way to promote equality. We need to look to them instead of it, it, trying to enforce uh, or exempt ourselves from you know regulations by the government. Yeah, because it is, I I think one of the saddest things that that we learned as we were talking to people when we were writing our book, She Deserves Better, is is for so many young women, church is the only place where they are discriminated against. You know, in universities, they're they're praised, in colleges, they're praised, they're encouraged to get graduate degrees, to keep going. Um, you know, in the workplace, they're they have multiple opportunities, but in church, they don't. And it's really hard when the place that represents your faith, that represents the God that you so desperately love is the only place that tells you you're not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that was the experience of my wife. You know, we went to uh, a Pentecostal undergraduate Bible college and I mean, she could not have been more elevated and praised. And it was, it was like this nice little bubble of egalitarianism. Um, to, but we got out into the real world into our first ministry position. And, you know, lo and behold, she, you know, we came to a place where she was actually, you know, asked to, to step off staff because someone else on staff had a problem with her being a woman in ministry and working closely with him. And so uh, now I will say, full disclosure, she was given the alternative of being my secretary. So there, there was that, you know, but, uh, we, we politely declined and left, but, um, I think that, yeah, we, we, uh, were kind of in this, in this place and we, and we think it's this, that we associate often empowering female clergy as this like progressive issue. Well, it's, you know, liberal drift and stuff like that. But the reality is, is that the church has been lifting up women since literally the resurrection. Like mm -hmm. the first proclaimers of the good news were women and God, God entrusted a woman to carry the gospel in, in the incarnate, uh, uh, in, in the incarnation, in the womb of Mary. And so we see these early phases and, and we can go through Paul and, and all of these others examples in the post apostolic age of women being elevated above the the normal cultural expectations for a woman's place and we see that continue that thread continue it's just we've often had this dominating thread of male heroes in christian history but there are plenty of female ones to go around as beth allison bar notes in her work and, and, and mm -hmm. lucy papiot and others so i think that we need to come back to this place where we set this example of the church is a place where women can thrive where women can can flourish in a way that they can't in any in any other environment Oh gosh, I, I that that sends shivers up my spines. I, I, I spine. I wish that we could have that, honestly, because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't feel like we do. Okay, you then you then move on to the book into an interesting er area because I don't think a lot of people realize this is that there's there's two different kinds of complementarians. So maybe there's three. I might have to count this. But you know, th there's there are those who think that women can preach, and so we're we're going to be equal in church, um, but not in the home. 
So in the home, we're still going to have headship and males in authority, but in church, we're not. And then there's those who are pretty egalitarian at home, but they're pretty complementarian in church. And then there's some that are both. So maybe that's three categories. But um, uh, that that is something that I see in a lot of denominations that do ordain women is that the the marriage, the teaching around marriage can still be heavily complementary. And so you do, you do go through a lot of that. Um, and I, I want to read, I want to read this to you. You said, there's another problem with the term spiritual. The way spiritual is used is in contrast to the physical. Men and women might do their finances, household chores, meal planning, et cetera, together, the physical things, but the spiritual matters are the domain of men, or at least where he might have the final say. But this way of dividing the cosmos between the unseen, spiritual, supernatural, and the seen, physical, natural is born from the enlightenment, not from scripture. So can you explain that? Because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so we we often draw these these lines between the spiritual and the physical, the secular and the sacred, the supernatural and the natural, and we kind of group them together, um, which uh, comes down to where we end up feeling like, well, the the spiritual is that which is intangible; it's what I can't see, and that's that's the good stuff. You know, the the body is just this shell that I'm supposed to shed, and you know, I'll kind of float away on a cloud into the sweet by and by. And <laughs> this the categorization of our lives of I have my spiritual life, I have my work life, I have my family life is is born from the enlightenment, from enlightenment philosophy of um, specifically, I, I want to say it was uh, John Locke. Don't quote me on that on the fly, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, that drew, that began to draw kind of these, these dividing lines between the private life and the public life. But the first Christians and the Jews from which uh, our faith is born didn't divide the world that way. So it wasn't this secular and sacred, it was creator and creation. And so the only thing that was apart from creation was God and everything else seen and unseen was grouped together in this creation. So this idea that, well, men can are supposed to be the spiritual head, but everything else is kind of this jumbled mess is, is this division that really doesn't make sense in, in the mind of the first readers of scripture. It's not, it's just not the way they would have thought because they thought much more holistically that my physical life is spiritual, that the way I tend to creation is spiritual, that the way I manage my finances is spiritual because it's all about how I steward creation in relation to my, my covenant with Yahweh. And so that comes down to this, this whole dichotomy of, well, we're egalitarian at church, but the husband is the spiritual head that mm -hmm. just doesn't, that doesn't actually pan out in, in, if you look at the way that Christian theology formed in the first, uh, in the first century. And so it, it, it really, does, it just doesn't hold any water, but it's mm -hmm. kind of been the de facto assumed belief in egalitarian spaces. And I think some of that is because there's not, there's not a whole lot out there from an egalitarian perspective on how do I live an egalitarian life? I think, I, I think of honestly resources like your podcasts and your books and and others it kind of in this world of marriage and family from this uh, this equal treatment of men and women is is not the dominant voice it's been very much mm -hmm. dominated by kind of these this leave it to beaver mid 20th century american notion of gender roles in the home 
And so I think that is, some of it is is just this is what we've inherited. And until the conversation gets louder and uh, uh, that shows a more excellent way, um, it, it'll continue, which is why I think that we need to show a more excellent way. Exactly. Okay. You, you get into one of my pet peeves, which I'm so glad you tackled this, but the idea that, well, well, what it means for a man to be ahead is that ultimately decisions rest with him. And so if you're in disagreement, he gets to be the tiebreaker. And that drives me bloody bonkers because, um, first of all, he could just simply declare anything in need of a tiebreaker. So it essentially means that he gets to make all the decisions if he wants right. to, but, but it also makes no sense because if if your aim is to follow after God and there's a disagreement and you let him decide, then there's only two options. You know, either you're both wrong, like there's never there's never an option where you're both right. Either you're both wrong or one of you's right and one of you's wrong. Like, and what what about trying to find a situation where you're both following God? Like, why aren't we moving towards unity? Why aren't we moving towards better wisdom? <laughs> and, and why are we doing this tiebreaker thing if the whole point is to follow God? So you have, you have a whole bunch of questions to ask. You know, if you are in disagreement and you don't want to just go to a tiebreaker, here's some practical ways to do it. So do you want to fill us in on some of that? Yeah. And th this was one that, this was a principle that I learned born from making mistakes in, in marriage and in dialogue with Tara. I began to recognize that this idea of having a tiebreaker rule is just, it, it, ultimately it's silly because like you said, we, uh, the idea is striving for unity. It's striving to be led by the spirit. And we love our kind of universally applicable rules like that. Well, th if this happens, this happens. This is, these are the rules we follow. We love that in our culture. Again, not really the, the priority of the, the cultures of the Bible. They valued the stability of relationships. And so if we follow that biblical pattern, we recognize like it, it's a lot, it's a little bit messier because relationships mm -hmm. are messy, but there's intimacy that's built in the mess in, in, in the process. But for us, we kind of have, have, and we don't have like this list posted anywhere, but it's just kind of our lived criteria. We often default to, you know, who has the expertise in the area, who's better informed. Mm -hmm. um, we default, as we're talking about something, we may defer to the other person based on uh, who feels really that they're being led by the spirit and who feels like they're being led by their emotions or uh, the flesh. Um, we often default to uh, or defer to one another based on sometimes it's just a matter of who cares more. Yeah. <laughs> some things that like, babe, I'm with you, but like, I don't, I don't really care what color we paint this wall or something like that. And I don't need to make a big thing of it. I can just support, give feedback mm -hmm. where it's desired. But if she's the one that cares about that, then that's, mm -hmm. that's fundamentally what matters. And so, and then there's, there's ultimately for us, and this is for us. So this is not a universally applicable rule, but for us, we tend to defer to one another based in, in matters of like safety for our family. She tends to defer to me and in matters of like wisdom and navigating relationships, I tend to defer to her. And that's just where our strengths kind of fall. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But that may be different for other couples. And I, and I, I'm always cautious about, well, this and that, because marriage and parenting, uh, uh, publishing is just dominated with, well, women have this, this, and this, and men are this, this, and this, and, you know, men are the, the, you know, uh, the protectors and women are the nurturers. And that's not, that's not true, you know, and it, it can be at times, but it's not universally true. So I, I give that caveat there. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is, it's this beautiful mess, but we have found as we've navigated that mess, 
it has caused our relationship to flourish. And I would say that regardless of theology, that pursuit actually enhances marriages and strengthens them in a way that just having a tiebreaker rule doesn't do. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. You talk a lot about how when we do do that tiebreaker, when we do default to men, that really is a form of patriarchy and that actually breeds dysfunction. It doesn't breed unity. Um, I know I have found that too, but, but what I hear over and over again from those who do say that we should have patriarchy is that God is a God of order mm -hmm. and, you know, he wants us to live ordered lives and he doesn't want us to live in the chaos. And how do you reply to that one? I, I would say that, that God, God is a God of order. Uh, yes, but God is a God of flourishing. God desires mm -hmm. for his people to flourish and that order it has a purpose and that's to support that. It's not just this arbitrary, well, God's a God of order because he's like, you know, a drill sergeant. No, that order is intended to promote human flourishing. And so you kind of have to reverse engineer it. If that order isn't promoting human flourishing, then it's it's probably not an order given by God. And we're reading that into, into uh, God's character. And we've all worked for that kind of boss that, you know, give, kind of gives away a fake uh, amount of uh, or authority, you know, and then mm -hmm. a time of crisis takes it all back and it's disempowering. It feels, you know, I've, I've, I worked for a pastor that was, you know, very empowering until he wasn't. And then it was just, everything just came right back to him, like, you know, a, a state of emergency. And that it, it's very disempowering. And I think when women experience that, it has, it breeds a dysfunction into a marriage that is unhealthy that, mm -hmm. well, I have, I have authority. I have a say until I don't. And, you know, if the husband always has kind of that emergency button that he can hit and declare, you know, martial law, then it, it's, then the, that authority is really an illusion. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Okay. So, so in the book, the case that you're making is it, throughout is really how can men use the power that they do have to, to prop up women, to empower women so that we can all be part of this kingdom because God needs all of us, right? Like it's not just about men, God needs all of us. And um, at the end, um, that, that really is what you're, what you're building to. And you gave a number of examples in the book. And I'm wondering if you can share just one story of, of how you actually empowered your wife, how you gave up something. Cause, cause you said, um, uh, when you, um, when you give away some of your power, it feels like a loss at first. It feels like you're giving up a scarce resource. It feels counterintuitive. So, you know, and it is hard and I know you shared how it was hard, but can, can you tell us one story of when you did that for Tara? Yeah, I think, uh, it probably in, in the, one of the, uh, last churches that, that we served together on staff at. Um, you know, we, we were both in, in leadership, uh, but there was kind of this default, uh, a, a default regard for me. So if, you know, they wanted, you know, an answer on something, they would come and, and she was kind of like the, uh, she was the, the, the tag along in, in some ways, um, when we first stepped on staff. And so if, you know, there was something that, you know, needed to be, you know, a, a class that needed to be taught or uh, a sermon that needed to be preached, it, they would come to me just by default. And, mm -hmm. and really for no other good reason than, than I, I am the man. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and so what I began, and now this, you know, this was a, an influential church and it was a great opportunity to speaking in front of tons of people and a wonderful congregation. So it's not like they were a bunch of people with arms folded. Like they're the kind of people you, you just, you want to teach, you want to preach to because they're so receptive and just 
loving and supportive and, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it has the potential to just breathe life into your ego, you know? And I began to, to see how in, even in areas where she honestly would have been the better person to go to, I was the default. And so I began to recommend, well, I actually, I'm not available. Could you, could you, uh, maybe you should talk to Tara or I actually think Tara would be the better one to, to speak on that. And, and so before long, they began to give her more and more opportunity and it, it allowed for, and it wasn't this whole light where she needed to like be propped up. It was really, I needed to step out of the way for a second so they could actually see her for who she was on her own merit. And they did. And it was a tremendous benefit to the church. Um, and it provided a lot of opportunity. It actually showed like, you know, between the two of us, she's, re she's really the better preacher. And it provided opportunity for her to be able to exercise those giftings in a way that had I just, you know, hoarded that, that opportunity, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have done. And so, um, and, I, and I think about, you know, there are other instances um, in different church situations that we've been in where it, a lot of it has been just looking for opportunities of how can I use my privilege, call it for what it is, in a way that just uh, redirects praise to a woman or to uh, to give uh, an opportunity away to a woman. And it, it provide it, like I said, it multiplies back on you. And some of that is just like, I, I think of an example where there's a, a woman uh, in, in an organization I was a part of that uh, I had an opportunity to take, because uh, to take credit for a work that she had done. I was in a meeting she wasn't in, nobody would have known, it would have been great. I talk about this in the book. And instead I highlighted like, hey, this, this is actually the person that you need to love praise on. And if the opportunity ever presents itself for her to work on my team, I would love that because she's amazing. And she was one of the first person uh, people that reached out to me when uh, I announced that I was writing this book to offer like, hey, when this launches, like I'll do it, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to help. <laughs> and you don't do it for that, but it was an it was an unintended consequence of being willing to give away that opportunity um, just to, uh, to recognize that in some way, shape or form, it always comes back to, to, uh, to be a blessing in the long run. Yeah. I love that. And do, have you noticed in your years of, of trying to be deliberate and intentional about this, have the men around you started to mimic that? Has that, has that been contagious at all? Yeah. And, and I think that that's really one of the, the reasons why I wrote the book is because it doesn't, it actually doesn't take much. It takes awareness. And I think a lot of men, especially in egalitarian spaces, they believe women can be pastors and they don't know what they don't know. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And so, so a lot of the book is aimed at learning to listen to women, learning to, to look for unintentional cues that are uh, little cues that you might be dominating a conversation where you could actually proactively listen. Um, but I have found that men are very receptive. Um, because I think at the end of the day, we we want to empower the women in our lives, um, but often just don't don't know how. And you know, I I'll speak for myself. Sometimes it takes you know a, more of a, a, a more of a, a direct approach to learning how to uh, or to to developing um, uh, a practice that that changes the way that I behave, rather than just picking up on unintended. Oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Instead, it sometimes just takes someone explicitly saying, "Hey, if when you do that, it it actually is disempowering the the women in your life." Yeah, I love that. Well, this is, I think it's such an important book. It's its a different 
take on it than a lot of the books that we've had in the podcast that I've talked about lately, because yeah, it's not just saying, what does the Bible say? But it's like, how practically as a husband, do you support the fact that God has given your wife gifts too? And your wife is not just here to support you. Like, how can you support her? And and yeah, you cover everything. You cover housework, you cover decision-making, you cover um, how we act in church, you cover how we parent. Um, yeah, I, I, I just love it. And so I, I really appreciate the work that you put into this. Do you want to tell people where they can find it or where they can find you? Yeah, so you you can find all of my social media. If you want to follow me on social, is just at Todd Corpy, K-O-R-P-I. Um, and then you can buy the book, Your Daughter Shall Prophesy on Amazon, on Wiffenstock's website, Barnes, pretty much anywhere you can buy a book uh, online. So, And we yeah. will put links. We'll put links in the podcast notes to your socials and uh, and the book as well. So Perfect. yeah, thank, thank you so, so much. much. Thank you for doing this work. It. Yeah, we, I'm really glad you're, you're in the space with us. So appreciate it. Yeah. I so appreciated hearing from Todd. And thank you for joining us on this Bear Marriage podcast. You know, it's been a strange week. Um, the Shiny Happy People documentary launched last week. And just in the last few days um, online, we've just been inundated with people realizing how toxic uh, these teachings were and how toxic so many of the corners of evangelicalism were. And these teachings infiltrated all kinds of stuff, even if you weren't part of um, conservative homeschooling movements, even if you weren't part of the Goddard's, the Gothard's um, seminars, a lot of it, you still hear it. As I was watching the documentary, I heard echoes of Dana Gresh talking about the China teacup versus uh, the ceramic mug. I heard all about um, eye traps. I mean, these are all things that Dana Gresh taught in Secret Keeper Girl too, which was mainstream. And this is something which the evangelical church is going to have to grapple with. And so if you haven't seen the documentary yet on Amazon Prime, it's four episodes. It's super good. And we need to open our eyes to what has been done in our name. Um, and we need and, and we need to confront it and change. And I hope this podcast is part of that change. So thank you for being a part of our community. Um, if you haven't already joined us on social media, please check me out on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Twitter is angry, Sheila. Um, you know, Facebook is let's talk, Sheila. <laughs> they're all different, but they're all me. And um, let's keep this conversation going, because I think this is the way that the church is going to change. And this is the way that we're going to start having those relationships, as Todd Corby talked about, that we really want to have, that are meaningful and that empower everybody. Um, so thanks for joining us. And next week on the Bear Marriage Podcast, um, we're going to be talking about some some of our new findings that Joanna's run some new numbers on orgasm, super interesting. And we'll be looking at some other new studies um, that we want to let you in on. So join us next week on the Bear Marriage Podcast too. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>